Lord, we echo that in prayer, that your son, Jesus Christ, he is glorified, he is magnified, and may he be magnified and glorified throughout all of the earth. Lord, as we think about it in our own church, and we think about as we've been praying this morning over the course of several weeks, what these 500 breakthroughs represent, that they are people that are desperate and hopeless and need Jesus Christ, the one who is forever magnified, the one who is forever glorified in all of the earth, and he alone is the hope for humanity. Lord God, may this message that we sing, that we praise, praise you today with this, this message of this, of this song, Lord God, may it be upon our lips as we leave this place, as we go into our places of work, our neighborhoods, even our own families, and may we be willing to speak that good news, the gospel. Lord God, may you go before us, and in his great name, the name of Jesus, we do pray. Amen. Amen. Today, Nehemiah chapter 10, we are called to commitment. The title of today's message is called to commitment. And for those of you who are just joining us today, we've been in a multi-week study through the book of Nehemiah, in which we are looking at this great calling that Nehemiah was given. Of course, the people led by Ezra and Zerubbabel after the nation of Israel had been dispersed by being conquered by Babylon and conquered before that the northern kingdom by Assyria. They were dispersed throughout the known world at the time. Well, God had been working through the channels of history as he is sovereign over all of history to bring the people back to their homeland through first the leading of Ezra and Zerubbabel. But then as they were there, we know they were just kind of sitting ducks. Ultimately, they weren't, of course, because the sovereign hand of God was upon them. But to the nations around them, they had no way of protecting themselves. So to the nations around them, they looked like just sitting ducks ready to be conquered at any time. And this weighed heavy upon the heart of Nehemiah. And he felt a calling of God to go and lead a group of people and lead the people that were there to rebuild the walls so that they might be fortified. An incredible calling. And this calling that was given to him by God, not only did God lead him to do this, but his sovereign hand led the entire way, even to the point where the most powerful man in the world, the, the king, uh, King Artaxerxes, he gave, uh, not only did he give his, his blessing to go, but he gave up some of his own resources out of his own great forest. So the sovereign hand of God was upon them. And so we've seen now, of course, that they were in the process of rebuilding the wall. And now they're in this time of revival in which they're being renewed and their hearts are being turned back to the word of God. And so we see that they come to a place of covenant, a renewed covenant with God. And truly they were called not only to covenant, but they were called to commitment. Now many of us know that one of the greatest commitments you'll make in all of life is the commitment of marriage. One of the greatest commitments that you'll make in all of life. And we had a great opportunity last night, Allie and I, to kind of do our last marriage counseling session with Matt and Michaela. Matthew Nix and soon to be Michaela Nix here. We had our opportunity to do that last night. And uh, we told the story, I can't remember how it came up, of one of my greatest failures as a young husband. I was, I don't know how many months we were married, but uh, or not many. Yeah, look at that, she won't even look at me. Um, I don't know how many months we were married, but I pulled one of the dumb husband mistakes pretty early on. So, you know, of course, she, my wife, Allie, wants to be a great hostess, you know, and, and uh, you know, she's got her house in order. She wants to host with a meal. And so I, we say, well, let's just host my friend Aaron. He was my roommate through college, and, you know, we're really young. I think, you know, 21 or something like that, and we want to host my friend Aaron. And so um, we're thinking, okay, this, what, what kind of a meal can we make? And Aaron was a Cajun. He was from Louisiana, and he had so first part of his childhood. He'd grown up in Louisiana, and then 
uh, second part of his childhood in East Texas. And so Allie made some crawfish etouffee that was wonderful, wonderful. And so she's like, well, what do we make for dessert? I love pecan pie. I absolutely love pecan pie. Yeah, I've got some amens for that alone, you know. Pecan and key lime pie. I love those two pies. So love pecan pie. And so I'm figuring, you know, my, my friend Aaron, you know, he's, he's a southerner and he's from Louisiana and then East Texas. I mean, you go pick pecans off the ground down there. So how did, you know, surely I thought that was a safe bet. So I said, we'll make pecan pie. I'll check with him just to be on the safe side, but we'll make pecan pie. That'll be, that'll be great. So fast forward to the meal and the crawfish etouffee, we are just consuming that. Man, that's going great. And then Allie notices he's just kind of picking at his pecan pie, you know, and so she's just kind of picking at it and she's like wondering, and, and I'm over here eating like three or four pieces, you know, I'm just going to town on it. It's great pecan pie. And so she's wondering, so after it's all done, uh, she's saying, I just don't get it. What was the deal? Because you asked him about that, right? If he likes pecan pie, and I did. I'd asked him if he likes pecan pie. Well, come to find out, not only, I did talk to my friend Aaron, but I had my heart so set on pecan pie that he told me not only does he not like pecan pie, but he doesn't like nuts at all. And so I just, I, I wanted that pecan pie so bad that I neglected to tell that to Allie. So I got my pecan pie anyway. So as you can imagine, that was dumb. And now, you know, 15 years later, I realized just how dumb that was. But you know, one of those times where she's probably you know, considering, oh my gosh, this commitment that I've made to this guy here, you know, reconsidering that. But here's the thing. When we think about our commitment that we make unto God, and when we truly, when we become believers in Jesus Christ, we are committed to him as he's committed to us, the greatest resource he had, which was his son, Jesus Christ, to come to die on the cross for us. That if we would accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, we might be forgiven and cleansed. And not only that, we have a certainty of heaven. Not only that, but Jesus Christ says we have the abundant life in John 10.10. 10. Not only that, but we're not just accepted by God, but we are adopted into his family. Incredible truth, incredible reality. And here's the thing. Unlike young, dumb husbands, God is the one whom we make a commitment to that will never, ever, ever fail us. And so we see here. Um, as we come to Nehemiah chapter 10, we see that they were called to commitment. So starting in verse 1, it says, Now those who placed their seal on the documents were Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah and Zedekiah, Sarariah, Azariah. No, I'm just kidding. Y'all are looking at all those names and you're thinking, oh my gosh, we're going to read through all of those names. 14 verses of names. No, we're not going to do that. So let's skip down to verse 28. 28 here. Now it says, Now the rest of the people... The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nethanim, and we're going to get back to them in just a minute, and those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding. These joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse, we'll get that to back to that in just a moment, and an oath to walk in God's law which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe to do all the commandments of the Lord our God, his ordinances and his statutes. We would not give our daughters as wives to the peoples of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. If the peoples of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we would forego the seventh year's produce and the exacting of every debt. That meant it was a year in which they would allow their ground to lie fallow. We see this in the book of Exodus 
in Leviticus, not only the great wisdom of God, but it also, as we see, the commitment unto him, a great commitment different from the peoples of the land. And we also made ordinances for ourselves to exact from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offering of the Sabbaths, the new moons, and the set feasts, for the holy things, for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel in all the work of the house of our God. So the great uh, kind of worship that they participated in together as a people. We cast lots among the priests and the Levites for bringing of the wood offering into the house of God according to the Father's houses at the appointed times of the year. So they were sacrificing on behalf of, of this temple worship. To burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. And we made ordinances to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the trees year by year to the house of God to bring the firstborn of our son and our cattle as it is written in the law, pledging those things as well for service unto God. And the firstborn of our herds and flocks to the house of our Lord God, to the priests who minister in the house, to bring the first fruits of our dough, our offerings, the fruit of all kinds of trees, new wine and oil to the priests, to the storerooms of the house of God, to bring the tithes of our land to the Levites, the ones that were conducting temple worship, for the Levites should receive these tithes of all of our farming communities. And the priests... The descendant of Aaron shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive these tithes. And the Levites shall bring up a tenth of these tithes to the house of our God, to the rooms of the storehouse. Listen to this, verse 39, as we finish up the chapter here. For the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of the grain, of the new wine and the oil, to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are, where the priests who minister and where the gatekeepers and the singers are. And they will not neglect the house of our God. They will not neglect the house of our God. So as we draw these kind of principles out, as we see here, we're going to put it up on our screen. I want you guys to write this down, this sort of main thought of this passage here. As, it, as we draw it into our day and into our lives, it says this very thing. As believers, our covenant that we make when we become believers in Jesus Christ, our covenant with God means a commitment to distinction and a commitment to sacrifice. A commitment to distinction and a commitment to to sacrifice. First of all, we see that first part of that, a commitment to distinction. Many of you know the male cardinal, that, that cardinal bird, that bright red color that, that makes him distinct and makes him attractive to the female bird. And it's one of the many animals that we see that have great distinction in the animal kingdom. And it makes him stand out. And when we think about uh, our Christian life, and it kind of dovetails very nicely with the next kind of little subpoint that we're going to see in this section about being a witness. When we think about being distinct in our world, not only are we distinct for the purpose of preservation, but we're distinct for the purpose of being a witness. So we see this concept in Scripture of being in the world, but not of the world. Now that statement itself, we never find that exact statement in Scripture, but the principle is definitely there. Especially when we think about 1 John, when we're called to, to, to be in the world, but not of the world. Again, not distinctly in that term, but we see that concept there. And we see it also echoed in John chapter 17. I love this. And I think this is probably the best illustration of this in all of Scripture, of this dynamic. You know, John, uh, Jesus himself, as John records, is praying the night before his death in John chapter 17. And he's going through this list. Again, this last prayer of, uh, that he prays unto God, this last great prayer before he is to go to the cross. And so these are some of the most important things that he could think would come to his mind. Not only to pray to his father, but pray for his disciples. And so in the midst of this, 
Listen to this, John chapter 17, verse 15. So when he's talking about them that we'll see in just a moment, he's not only talking about his inner 12, but he's also talking about all of the other followers at that time. And he's talking about all of his followers, us that are believers in Jesus Christ, known as disciples throughout all time. That's the them in this verse. So he says, I do not pray that you should take them, all of us that are believers in Jesus Christ, out of this world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. So he says, we need to be in the world. We don't want to be drawn out of the world because how can we be, as we see in Matthew chapter 5, salt and light? How can we be an agent of preservation? And how can we be an agent of cleansing in this dark world that's desperately dark and hopeless and oftentimes doesn't even know that it is? We have to be in the world. But yet, as we see, we have to be distinct. We have to be distinct. So we see this aspect of distinction for preservation. And again, we see in verse 28, it says that the rest of the people, they were bringing the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nethanim, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land, they separated themselves to, unto the law of God. And, and, and their wives and their sons, their daughters, everyone who had knowledge, these joined with their brethren, their nobles, they entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. You see, in biblical uh, history and in biblical record, a curse, as it's known, is even stronger than an oath. Probably one of the greatest examples of this sort of curse oath we see in Genesis chapter 15, when God himself tells, uh, tells Abraham, after he's promised to him, that he says, I'm going to bless you, and your descendants are going to be like the stars of heaven, and I promise you it's going to happen. You can absolutely count on me. You can commit to me. I am the sovereign God who will never let you down. You know the way he proves it and the way he, he, he demonstrates, and in fact, he, he tells Abraham that you need to, to take this level of seriousness with it as well, as he tells Abraham to get animals, as the animal sacrifices were obviously prevalent in those days. And he says, divide those animals just like this. Put one half here, one half here. Next animal, half here, half here, half here. And he walks through the center of them. Or God, represented by smoke and fire, walks right through the center, passes right through the center of those animals. And what it was a picture of, and we see it echoed in other places and even extra biblical material as well, is that the, the idea, the word picture, the power of that idea is that if, if, if one were to break this oath, may what happened to those animals happen to the person who breaks that oath. So this is serious business. Serious business of distinction, as they've called themselves and their families, each individual and their family units, they've called themselves to, to preservation, to a distinction for the purpose of preservation in the world that desperately needs light in the midst of darkness. And what did they say? They, they're also saying a curse to follow all of God's law, all of God's law. Now, folks, this can be really difficult in our individual lives, and it can be difficult in our culture as well. Because there are certain things that the Bible calls us to do that are difficult to follow. But it becomes a matter of trust. It's a matter of trust in saying, am I going to follow my own heart? Am I going to follow my own thought? Am I going to follow the wisdom of my friends? Am I going to follow the wisdom of, of culture at large? Or am I going to trust that God is who he says he is, that he is the sovereign God over all the universe, and he is always does what's right? There's a great big word in theology called omnibenevolent, meaning he's always good. And, and that he's omniscient, he always knows what's right. So put all of those things together. Do we believe that he is who he says he is and that he will always tell us to do what's right and he will always do what's good for us, even if it's difficult for us? Sure, I'm going to trust that. 
all of God's law, or am I going to pick and choose? Think about when the, the word of God comes up against culture. We know at all times in culture, the word of God and people that follow the word of God have always been a little weird in culture, even in the first century. Even in the first century, if you look at first century Roman culture, there was a definite distinction. So we can't, as believers in Jesus Christ, say that my number one, if we're honest with ourselves, my number one goal is I'm going to follow God's word up until the point where it becomes a little hard for culture to swallow. Because if it gets to that point, we're always going to be moving the bar back. There will be things right now that you say, you know, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do this thing or I'll go along with culture in this particular thing, but I'd never go along with culture in this particular thing. Well, 20 years from now, fast forward, you may be going along with culture on this particular thing. Unless you say that this is the eternal word of God, eternal word of God, without error, and it is always right for life even if it's not popular in culture, even if it's not popular in culture. Because here's the thing, in the midst of a world of darkness, and oftentimes individuals in this world of darkness don't realize the hopelessness and the darkness that they're living in, because we are able to pacify ourselves. With adults, I oftentimes call them adult pacifiers. We have these adult pacifiers, of maybe it's media or television, or maybe it's even relationships. But when we're honest with ourselves, and maybe it even, doesn't even happen until late at night, when we're, again, laying down in our bed, we're quiet, everything's off, and then the, the, the dread and the hopelessness begins to creep in. You know, we live in a world where we're rubbing shoulders with people that are living in hopelessness and desperately need the light in the midst of darkness. And we are the ones who bring that light. He also says, in a, in, in a very practical example of this, as they entered into this curse, this serious pledge of commitment to follow all of God's law, and he said, in fact, we wouldn't intermarry. We wouldn't let... We wouldn't marry their daughters or let our daughters marry. And it seems a little harsh, doesn't it? But that's not at all harsh because God knew that the people needed to preserve that level of holiness. And as we know, in any sort of relationship, and this is where the rubber meets the road in, in living in the world but not of the world, we have to have relationships with unbelievers. We have to. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have to have relationships with unbelievers. But it has to be in such a way that we are the ones that are influencing, not the other way around. You see? And even when we think about some of the younger folks out here that haven't come to that point of marriage yet, we have to be very, very careful to follow the New Testament echo of this very idea of not being unequally yoked. And it's very hard, especially when we know that someone is attractive, physically attractive. And by the way, that's not unusual, that's not weird. God created that sort of physical attraction. But here's the thing, here's the secret. Guess what? We will all get ugly at some point. All of us. I've been losing my hair. I've got, gosh, at least 20 extra pounds on, right? It happens to all of us. But here's the beauty. Here's the beauty that absolutely never fades. It is that Proverbs 31, and I know that's specifically with the application of a woman, but on the male side of that too, it is that Christ-likeness that's echoed in Proverbs 31. The sort of beauty that never fades, man or woman, is christ likeness christ likeness and so any of our relationships as well it that sort of principle needs to prevail of we need to be in relationships with unbelievers but it has to be in such a way that the light shines forth the light shines forth so preservation in this world distinction for the purpose of preservation but also dovetailing with that following right along is preservation or distinction for a witness for a witness verses 31 and 32 we see a couple of really uh, poignant little statements there. It says, we wouldn't buy from them 
on the Sabbath. So again, they were having interaction with the lost world. They were trading with them. They were having conversations. They were rubbing shoulders just as we do. But it said we wouldn't buy from them on the Sabbath because remember, God told them to, to keep the Sabbath, keep it holy. It is a day that you dedicate unto him. And also something that was really strange in, in, in certain cultures as well is every seven years, they would let the ground lie fallow. Not only to mention, is that a good farming practice as well? Of course, God who created the world, created all the crops, might know how they best are farmed. And so he told them to let the, the ground lie fallow. But it was also a testimony. Both of those things were a testimony of trust. They're saying, we trust our God enough that we're going to do as God prescribes. And we're going to do more when you think about specifically the Sabbath day. We're going to do more in six days than you're doing in seven because we trust God. We're committing this time unto him. I want to show you a picture here. We all know this is one of the great disappointments of any Christian, <laughs> right? Not that they're standing for something they believe in closing on Sundays. That's great. But how many times have you pulled up, have you driven by Chick-fil-A on Sunday and you said, oh, oh, that's right, it's Chick-fil-A. They're not open on Sunday, you know? But here's the thing. It's a great, uh, great little statement that was on Babylon B. If you ever, first of all, if you've ever seen Babylon B, by the way, it's a satire. It's a Christian satire newspaper. Sometimes they write those things so well, people think their little stories and headlines are legitimate. But this was a great one. The, the, uh, the, the headline there, and you don't see it on the picture, was this. It said, confirmed, like it was breaking news from heaven. Confirmed, report from heaven, Chick-fil-A in heaven will be open on Sundays, right? I'm like, yes, that's great. But it's a distinction. And as you know from Truett Cathy, it was from the very beginning, they said, we are going to close on Sunday, not only so our employees can worship, but it's a way to be distinct in the culture. And it's great witness, a great witness to that, that we trust God that we will do just as much or more in six days than you'll do in seven. So commitment to distinction is the first thing that we see. The second thing is a commitment to sacrifice, a commitment to sacrifice. Again, in verses 32 and 33, it says, also we made ordinances for ourselves to exact from ourselves yearly one-third a shekel for service unto the house of our God, for the showbread, for the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offering of the Sabbaths, the new moons, the set feasts, the holy things, basically all of the work of that place of gathering and that central place of worship, which was in that time, the temple, that time the temple. Now, I've told you all before, I walk that fine line, as every pastor should, when we talk about sacrifice, especially as it relates to this little sub-point or this point of finances, that I'm not going to beat anyone over the head, nor am I going to shy away from talking about finances and talking about giving unto the church, because that's what we see very clearly in Scripture. And not only are we called to be a cheerful giver, but we're called, that, and, and we're called to trust God that if we do give unto his work, do give unto his work, that he'll take care of us. Now, here's the thing, too. The other reason we can just unashamedly, not only because God talks about finances, but we can talk about it in this setting, is what more important thing can we think to give our money to than the very work of God in reaching the lost for Jesus Christ? Can we think of anything else that's more important to give our money to than that? Absolutely not. And we know also very clearly from Scripture that whether it be this church or whether it be any other church that God might call you to, that the local church is God's plan A with no plan B for reaching the lost world. So we can say unashamedly that we are called to give, to give cheerfully and to give sacrificially unto the work of God in our local church. But not only is it a commitment to sacrifice, and we'll see here of, of, of our best and woven throughout all of this is our finances, but we see also 
a sacrifice for service unto God. And even a little subset of that, a sacrifice for change. Verse 34, something very easy that you can miss, but when you really look into the context of this passage, it's really key and key for our situation as we know that we're in the midst of significant change in our church. We cast lots among the priests, the Levites, and cast lots of, or among the people, rather, for bringing the wood offering into the house of our God, according to their father's houses at the appointed times of the year, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord God, as it was written in the law. Now, here's the thing. Why did they have to do this? It seems rather small. It seems like, wouldn't they have had that figured out? Well, that Nethanim, that group that was referenced early in the passage, as you look back in temple proceedings uh, earlier in Scripture, it was the Nethanim that that was their job to do it. That was their job to bring the wood. And trust me, it was a lot of wood that you had to bring to keep those fires going for sacrifices, for temple sacrifices and worship. It was their job, but so few of the Nethanim returned with the exiles to the land that people had to pick up the slack somewhere else. People had, other people had to do it. So here's the thing. Change brings new opportunities for service. We know sometimes that change is difficult. And we know sometimes, for whatever reason, there's, it doesn't mean that this particular program or whatever was in, it has no intrinsic value. But we know just times change, certain things change. And sometimes programs, ministries, et cetera, et cetera, are going to change. And with that comes new opportunities for service and for some things that continue throughout time. And we say that this is a methodology that really finds its place in what we're doing now. Sometimes other people, we need to step up to the plate and fill those places. But as I've said many times before, whatever it is that God calls you to in a place of service and sacrifice for the church, every one of us, Every one of us need to have our hand on the rope of what God is doing here. Have our hand on the rope so that we are pulling together for Christ's service and for service of our world. So not only sacrifice of change, but sacrifice of the best. Verses 35 through 38, I'll scan through those since we've read through that a little bit before. But what you see in whatever form or the other, you constantly see the word first. First fruits, the first of this, the firstborn, the first of this, the first of this. Folks, listen to this. We must give God our best and not our leftovers. We must give God our best and not our leftovers. One of the greatest commodities in our modern world is time. One of the greatest commodities in, in, in our modern world is time. Now, it's our responsibility as a staff to make sure that what we're asking the people of our church to do that we are, we are really good to make sure that what we're asking you to do really has value, really has uh, something that, that, that like a laser is focused upon accomplishing the mission of any church of making disciples. That's our job to do that, to make sure that we're not asking people to do stuff that does, doesn't really have focus, doesn't really have a purpose, or may have seen its better days. That's our job to do that. But all of us are called to give our best and to give our best of our time and to give the best of our focus as well. So that's the third little sub-point that we see here is a sacrifice of focus. Sacrifice of focus. Verse 39, at the end of that verse, it says this, is again they're saying, we'll bring these things to the house of the Lord, we'll bring these things to those that lead us in worship, and at the very end, we will not neglect the house of our God. We'll not neglect the house of our God. You see, the house of the God, of their God, the temple at that time, it was the center of their worship. 
It was the center of their worship. Now, in the New Testament, we know that the temple equals believers. Temple is believers. Whether it be us as individuals, we know in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, towards the end of that, it says that our temple, our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. But also, earlier in that chapter, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you see that same principle applied to a local body of believers just like this. So you see not only that the body, uh, our individual body, is a temple of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit dwells within us as well. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. I'll read them for you. For we are God's fellow workers. So we're working together. Our hand is on the rope for accomplishing that mission of reaching Wichita and reaching the world. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, Paul is writing, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay that which, that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. And then skipping down to verse 16 of the same chapter. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit dwells in you? So we see in, in chapter 6, we see that dynamic applied to the individual. But in 3, we see it applied to the whole body of Christ. The Holy Spirit not only dwells in us as individuals, but amongst us as a body of Christ. And so because of that, our focus, we must have the sacrifice of focus upon this temple of God. No matter where it's housed, no matter what its physical housing may be, that we are focused on the fact that we are a family, we are a house of God, the Spirit of God dwells amongst us, and we are to all put our hand on the rope and to focus, to focus on reaching the world for Jesus Christ. You see, when we're called to commitment, again, we're called to be distinct in our world, to be distinct, to be other than. To be in the world, but not of the world. To be out there rubbing shoulders, loving, caring for believer or lost people. Uh, those that desperately need Jesus Christ. Those that we work with, those that we play with, those that we, we, we uh, do activities with. That we are there with them and we are showing them the love of Christ and that we care for them, we love them. But yet we must be distinct. We must be distinct and we must be distinct all with the spirit of joy. All with a spirit of joy, in a spirit of hope, and always ready to give an answer for the hope that's within us. Not only are we committed to be distinct, but we're committed to sacrifice. We're committed to sacrifice. We're committed to sacrifice in our own individual lives as we live them for Christ, and we're committed to sacrifice in the midst of this great dynamic known as a body of Christ, a local body of believers. So the question to you is this. Will you jo join with us daily as you and as we daily renew our covenant with God? Will you commit to be distinct and will you commit to sacrifice? Let's pray. Lord God, as we come now to this time of response, we pray that for those that may be here that don't know Christ as their Savior, may they be ready to make that greatest commitment, the greatest commitment that anyone could ever make, and that is commitment unto the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may they be willing to, uh, to respond to his sacrifice with a commitment of their own, a commitment to respond unto him. Lord, we as believers and as this church body, may we commit to be distinct in our world, whatever that means, even if it's tough, even if it means that we have to stand for something that's not popular and do it all with joy and all with hope upon our lips. 
And Lord, may we commit to sacrifice within this church body and with it in this world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.